Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Elected as MP for Ceredigion in 2017 as the youngest Plaid Cymru member of the UK Parliament, Ben Lake has quickly established himself as an effective parliamentarian and a spokesperson for Plaid Cymru on matters ranging from rural affairs to the constitution. Thanks for joining us today, Ben. Thank you, Jeff. About. Um, ben, we're gonna we've got a lot to cover, and especially about your work as an MP. But given the events of the last uh, few weeks, we we sort of have to start with the recent news that put Plaid under the spotlight and caused the party leader to step down. What has been your assessment of everything that's happened in the last couple of months? Yeah, it's been a very, very difficult few months um, and a period, I think, in the party's history that I'm sure in years to come, we'll be able to look back on and, and realise that it was an important learning moment for us, that we were able to uh, really consider some of the failings that have been brought to so it's very sharp relief um, by the report uh, written by Nara Sevens. And I have to say that she did a, a wonderful job because there are some people who kind of question whether or not somebody with such close links to the party might be able to deliver an objective um, and effective report into these concerns. But I think that she proved any doubters uh, wrong. Um, you know, in years to come, I think we'll be able to look back on this and realise that it was an important moment for us. There are clear, clear feelings, as the, you know, as the report made very clear, both in terms of structure and culture. You know, I think that there, and I, I'm, I'm mindful here not to kind of underestimate the challenge that we face, but I think it is a relatively straightforward matter to address the structural concerns and feelings. And one hopes then, having put some of these issues uh, right, the culture will follow the cultural changes that needs to follow. And to give him credit, I, I you know, I know he's only been in post uh, as as um, interim leader for a few days, matter of weeks or so. Um, but Lear, I think, has been very right in, in prioritising this um, and implementing the recommendations of the report. Um, when I last was given an update on the matter, um, I think some good progress was made, you know, early progress was made on, on some of the more straightforward recommendations and I know that Lear is very keen to ensure that the, the the more difficult and complicated recommendations are also implemented without delay and I think it's right you know for the party you know let's let's be honest it, it follows uh, a number of other difficult chapters in, in, in the party's history and um, I think that we are probably entering a period of real reflection as a party uh, we need to take stock of what's gone wrong, what we need to do to, to put it right, to earn or, or to win back some of the trust and faith of members. Um, because I think in a lot of these discussions, sometimes we overlook the importance of, of party members, both as you know, as, as activists, yes, and that is that is very important, but also for those who, who put faith in the party. And you know, you you need to ensure that you have a happy uh, membership. And that's all before we begin to hope to uh, take the case effectively to the people of Wales. Um, and I very much see this as a, a three-step or a three-stage process. You know, we need to put our own house in order as, um, if you like, the professional party. And about that, I, I don't mean necessarily any sort of um, ranking system here, but I'm t- taking it with elected uh, officials, the, the party staff. We need to get our... Um, arrangements in place, structures, then go back to the membership and, and hopefully prove to them that you know things are now on the right course. And with a happy membership, um, we can then hope to take a message to the people of Wales and, and, and win some new voters um, and supporters uh, in every part of Wales. But you know, let's not be let's not sugarcoat this. This has been a very, very difficult period for the party. So obviously you've mentioned Clear, uh, his role as interim uh, leader. Do you think uh, there will be any role for Clear after the, his period as interim leader in, in sort of carrying these reforms through? And what's your understanding of uh, the sort of time frame for the implementation, as you say, of some of the more challenging uh, recommendations of the Project Power report? Yeah, well, I, I hope there is a role for Clear. I, I should perhaps declare interest that Clear was very kind in uh, giving me my first role down in Cardiff in the Senev many years ago now, but um, I have a lot of uh, respect for Lear, uh, both as a 
as an individual, but also as a as a politician of great standing. And um, I hope that he will have a role. You know, I, I think it'd be a great loss if if Keir didn't uh, play a part, a very prominent part, um, in whatever the new leader uh, wants to do after June, July. Um, you know, I think I think he's a, he's well respected and trusted across sort of party boundaries, and and that's an important individual to have. In terms of the the more complicated um, and the more sort of significant recommendations, if I can put it like that, you know, my understanding is still that we want to get this done by uh, conference uh, in in October. Now, I think we are right not to sort of, um, as sometimes political parties, including Plaid Cymru, uh, tend to do, you know, we'll set this target. It's more of an ambition, I think, and, and to strive to get it done by October. And if that means that we only get, you know, 75 of the recommendations done in time, then that's better than if we were to say, look, this is going to take a long time. And by October, we only get 50 done. So um, that's my understanding of things now, that we're not wasting any time. And, and whilst we're not sort of setting it as a hard target, because ultimately, given the nature of the issue at hand here, we do need to be mindful that these things need to be done properly. So it is striking that balance. But still, let's get this done, because you know we I feel as though we can't really move on unless we've sorted it. Do you have any thoughts on who should be the next leader of the party? Obviously, you supported Reen in the last contest. Do you think he'd um, be a I good did. choice this time around? I think, you know, I I'm, I think he would, yes. Um, I think that uh, we're very lucky in, in um, the CNF group this time around and that we have um, brand new, I say brand new, we've got a, a good balance of... of sort of new blood and old blood, and um, any one of them really could do a job for us, I think, as leader. Uh, we, me and, uh, for everyone who, who knows here at podcast, Rich, the producer, we're having a chat before uh, we start the show about um, whether sort of the rights and wrongs of having a contest or having a contested election. Do, do you think the party would, would value a contest? Do you think this is a time to have this opportunity to discuss the future in the direction of party? Or do you think it would be a bit beneficial for the party just to have a sort of figureheads who went around at this difficult time? That's a really good question. And, and it's actually something that I've been grappling with myself because my instinct is to say, have the contest. You know, have the contest, let the membership have a wide-ranging debate and also take time on it. But then those sort of instincts are tempered somewhat by the realisation that we have a responsibility to sort out failings of uh, that were unveiled and sort of highlighted rather, not unveiled, highlighted by the Project Power report are very serious. And as a particular party with aspirations of leading wheels, you know, we have, I think, a moral responsibility uh, to, to sort this out and to do so in a timely manner. And that sort of then goes against a longer leadership election. It's not because I, I don't think that a, leadership, a longer leadership election, a contest, would be a good thing for the party. I think, you know, members will always enjoy the debate. But I just question them, well, what does that mean for the work of Project Paub? It has been suggested by some that, well, you can do both. In an ideal world, you would be able to do both. But we also need to take stock of the reality that by Cymru is still quite a small party and the machine you know, it'll be an undertaking and a half for them to implement some of the Project Paub recommendations, let alone also facilitate and run a, an internal party election, um, especially if it's a long drawn out one. So, you know, I, I think that if the group in the CNF have a, a, you know, a discussion amongst themselves and have a clear individual that they want to support, then I wouldn't complain if they then just sort of one one name goes forward. Some have said it's a coronation. Well, look, at the end of the day, the Senate group has a very important role um, in our constitution as a party. You know, the leader of the party must also lead the group in the Senate. And so if the group in the Senate um, thinks that only one name should go forward and they are all supportive of that individual, then I, it's, it's not for me then to say as a, a Westminster MP, tell them you can't do that. You know, they, they have a very important and significant role. And, you know, I for one respect that. Thanks for that, Ben. Um, so obviously now turning to your time as an MP, as we mentioned, you were just 24 when you were elected. How did you come to stand for election and win at such a young age? Well, I can answer the second bit easy. Um, a lot of luck <laughs> um, is how I won. In terms of how I got involved, um, I'd been, I, I was rather late coming to politics, I suppose, actually. 
because through school and, and uh, university, had an interest in politics, but wasn't party political. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, I, I probably, if pushed, I would have probably said, yes, I'm Plaid Cymru. But I, you know, I wasn't a party member um, through university. And when there were uh, sort of internal debates, um, internal elections for various positions in, in student politics, I, I had very little interest um, in that. I was very happy to sort of help behind the scenes and, and you know, help run events and, and I'm chipping that way. But in terms of, of being sort of in the front, there was no interest whatsoever. And uh, it was after graduating uh, from my master's and, and came back home properly that I started, as as many West Wallian would do, started kind of consider how unfair it was that uh, all of the job opportunities were, you know, around Cardiff and, and well, and, and not just Cardiff as well, a lot, Bristol and then London. And in, in comparison, you know, things were, more challenging in, in rural areas for a for a graduate then to pursue a, a role and be able to stay in in uh, home area. And uh, I remember it was whether it's a positive or negative thing. It was sort of uh, energized by that sort of uh, angst and grievance. So I remember going to um, the Meivod Estevod, um, and I'm not a big Estevod man either. So it was quite a rare occurrence for me to be at the National Estevod. And uh, a friend of mine from university, Ben Sadler, he. Um, He'd uh, convinced us to go up, and uh, he was a member of Plaid. And um, as we went past the Plaid uh, Cymru uh, stall at the Estevod, who stood there um, on that particular day, which was, I think, the 90th... Yeah, it was the 90th birthday of the uh, of the party, um, was Ellen Jones, uh, and Leanne Wood. And uh, Ben, uh, my friend, sort of managed to... to introduce us as it were and uh they i think it was ellen jones actually that said look if you're kind you should sign up to, you know be a party member and it was there and then and uh so i've got got involved with that must have been 2014 2015 i think and um shortly afterwards then with a lot of the kind of angst and ideas of how to improve rural areas i got more involved in the party and um one thing led to the other and uh when it came to the 2017 snap election um, I'm not sure that I've said this um, on, a, on a, in a public forum before, but on the on the um, morning of uh, Mrs May's uh, famous speech outside Downing Street, um, I was I remember I was in my parents' house, and uh, I was on a week so leave from work, and I had a phone call uh, basically to say, look, you need to come up to Aberystwyth, um, and as I was in the car, I was thinking, all right, okay, they're going to want me to run the campaign or to help in the campaign at least, and. And, you know, who could we have to stand? Because I think at the time it was pretty... I think Mike had already... Mike Parker, sorry, had already said that he wouldn't be standing. Or, um, but after the, you know, after the 2015 election, it made it clear. So you know, I was thinking through my head, who could stand? You know, you can't have a situation where Plaid doesn't have a candidate in Kerrigan. And, um, yeah, in the caban up on Pier Street, for those who are familiar with Aberystwyth, who know the caban, um, I remember Ellen um, uh, asking me, I was rather shocked, and uh, I didn't accept. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, Ellen is a very shrewd politician um, and a very persuasive individual, and uh, in the course of a week or so, uh, managed to convince me, and uh, I finally agreed to do so in in Hillie uh, Aaron Village Hall car park of all places, where I accepted. I then put my name forward, and. Uh, yeah, reluctantly, but now I wouldn't. You know, I'm glad. I'm very glad that Ellen convinced me. <laughs> I'm sure people of Wales and Cardigan are also very glad, Ben. Uh, the the when the, I was going to ask whether you ever found your age to be a barrier when you went to Westminster, because I remember at the time BBC Wales doing an interview with you and my former boss Paul Flynn, sort of the youngest and the oldest MPs in Wales. But did you ever find your age to be a barrier, especially at the beginning of your time in Parliament? Definitely. Definitely. More so, actually, I think in, in terms of um, constituency work rather than parliamentary work, in, in fairness. So the, the challenge more than anything is that it takes a little bit more to convince people uh, that you're competent. Um, it takes a lot more for people to trust you. And you can understand, right? You know, they will say, I remember having it a lot, especially in the 80s, you know, what could you know? You know, what life experience have you got? And um, 
back then I was a little bit more pugnacious. And um, so I would often kind of respond and say, well, what sort of experience do you want? You know, because if you want me to be expert in, in uh, health, I need to be a GP. But there are very few MPs who do that. So do you think age will necessarily give me a better idea of how to run the health service than actual education and, and expertise? And um, my line was always, look, I know that, you know, I'm very, very uh, cognizant of limitations of my ability. And so I will make sure to reach out to people who do understand what they're doing. And my job then is to reflect those opinions and, and expertise in a way that suits the interests of, of people at on. And you know what? Over time, I think well, there are still people to this day who tell me, you know, what on earth does he know? And that's fine. You know, that's probably quite good, actually, that people are, are still sceptical. But um, it has been, it, it was challenging. And it's taken a long time to, I would say, win over the majority of, of those who are concerned about having a young MP. Um, because there's, there's a wonderful thing about, I think this is true of all constituencies, but it's particularly the case in rural constituencies. I think the MP is often looked at as the person who looks after us. You know, it, it, it's a very specific role that I'd put up there with perhaps, you know, the parish vicar and, and GP. So they want somebody to be able to look after them. And then it's understandable that most people think of, you know, a parent figure. Well, if you're going to be a parent figure, you're going to have to be of a certain age. So having a 24-year-old as your sort of parent figure looking after you in Westminster, you know, it is difficult to, to reconcile. So that was challenging. But uh, in terms of Parliament, though, I think it was quite... The age wasn't much of an issue. Most MPs actually were quite blind to that. They They, they were far more interested in what you had to say and how you, you know, kind of uh, conducted yourself, actually, uh, which was not what I would have expected. I, I expected perhaps a more challenging time at Westminster because of my age. Well, well certainly since that point, you've gained uh, as much experience as, as anybody. Obviously, this last six years or so has certainly been a turbulent time. But what have you learned in that time, reflecting on some of the big debates we've been, obviously been having, whether it's Brexit or a once in a generation, once in a century pandemic? Ooh, there are a few things, um, but I'll try to keep them brief. The, and this, I'm going to sound now like a, another podcast, um, you know, uh, which is not quite as good as this one, but, um, you know, we, we've lost the ability to debate and exchange views in Wales as in other parts of think of Europe, you know, I, I, sadly, I think it's something that is quite a widespread phenomenon. And um, what it means, I think what it has contributed to is a greater polarization. Um, vast majority of people, are, you know, are between the extremes, but the debate is very often quite, uh, how could I put it? Well, let's be, no, let's, let's be frank about it. It can be vitriolic, it can be quite toxic. And, um, what you find then, is, I think, is that increasingly a lot of people disengage who are in the middle. They have views, but they, they just don't quite have the time or the energy to engage as, as frequently and as much as some of those on the, uh, on the extremes. And so the debate then in the public sphere looks to be far more black and white than it actually is. And, and it's not very reflective of um, the views of people. And then I can I kind of I see that bearing out in my day-to-day -day life as an MP because if you look at my inbox, you, you would think of a particular issue that there are two opposing sides and that's it. And then I go out on a Thursday or Friday or a Saturday speaking to people and you find actually people are far more sophisticated in their views, appreciate nuance, um, and, and also understand that there is seldom a very you know, there's seldom a silver bullet to solve some of the big issues that we're facing as as society. And then the other thing I, I think I'd probably say it was it was a, a development or a phenomenon that probably started before I entered politics, but I think we're really feeling the consequences now. And that, that has been, you know, the legacy of austerity. It is difficult to, you know, this is not a scientific analysis, far from it. This is anecdotal, but there was a time in 2017 say until 2019, uh, so the Brexit Parliament, that yes, there was a lot of anger um, with people over the Brexit debate, and you would, un you would understandably get that as an MP, but the casework was manageable. You know, you know, we were able to keep on top of it. We were able to deal with it quite effectively. Um, what has happened now since 
I would say the pandemic, no, it started the pandemic rather, the degradation of public services and also the third sector. And we need to remember how important the third sector has been uh, in Wales in delivering support and a whole range of issues to, to people. They've all been, and forgive my language, hammered in the last decade or so. And now we really are coming to the realisation that they are stretched and they are unable actually to meet many of the challenges that they face. Um, and um, it's unsurprising that the MPs and elected officials will then get a lot of the uh, those who are desperate for help. Um, and so, you know, if we're talking about mental health, um, if we're talking about housing, talking about concerns about inflation, the cost of living, you know, it's incomparable, I would say, now to the amount we have to deal with and my wonderful team has to deal with to the situation, even in 2019. You know, it, it, it really has. I think the pandemic finally broke through and you know, it snapped. It was the straw that, that, that uh, broke the camel's back. Um, and that's been a big, big issue. And I fear the consequences of this because I... We, you know, we've, there's much been talked about, you know, disillusionment with politics and disengagement, and that's dangerous. I also fear the it's probably two sides of the same coin, but I also fear the associated risk that you have then a growth in extreme politics, and in particular, you know, the love of the strong man. You know, history is is littered with uh, episodes where difficult, difficult times and perhaps a lack of good care on the part of more liberal uh, parties when it comes to the welfare state or, or other kind of state functions, leads to you know the individual, the, the normal family, just saying, look, we can't feed our children. We can't, we don't have secure, security of income, of tenure, what have you. You know what, that individual, and it tends to be a man in history, um, promising you know, the, the, the essentials in life and getting things done and breaking through the blob, as it's now called, you know, all this nonsense. And it, the problem is, though, I can I can understand that it's nonsense, that, that these big statements by sort of uh, populist politicians are not going to fix anything, it's not going to put bread on the table. But out of this sort of difficult time, desperation, I fear that, you know, some of these forces might have a, another a second wind in many, not just Wales, but but in many European countries. Obviously, I think the the cost of living crisis and sort of the many many layers that make that make up that very complicated economic situation that we've currently got. We all kind of broadly understand that now. But what, in your experience, as a rural MP, is different from the sort of usual narrative we're hearing? How are rural communities particularly impacted by sort of what we've now classing as a cost of living crisis. Yeah, well, thanks, Matt. Because it is, I think, it's a very important point. You know, we're um, and to steal quite a cliched phrase, but you know, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats, and uh, that also applies to sort of rural versus more urban. You know, there are different challenges in in the cities than there are to rural areas. The big thing I think for rural areas is we, well, first and foremost, Ceredigion as an example. You know, nearly three quarters of domestic households are not connected to the mains gas grid. So when there was talk about you know the energy price cap, as insufficient as that support was, it nevertheless didn't apply to you know three quarters of the people that I represent. We we had to struggle to get them get the government sorry of Westminster to increase the support uh, for off grid households, and those are you know, they might be using heating oil, LPG kind of canister gas. Um, and also in my part of the world, wood, um, you know, it's still a significant heating source for domestic uh, properties. And because it is a minority situation over the you know entirety of the UK, it has very little attention at, at Whitehall. I remember during, uh, this was last, last year, in the, in the initial aftermath of the invasion of Ukraine, when, if you recall, uh, petrol prices at the pumps kind of shot up. And I remember having a discussion with uh, an official of Treasury and trying to explain that you know, there was a serious issue here because it, I, was, I wasn't just talking about people 
struggling to get work to essential services, but also, you know, there were real questions at one point whether things like school buses were viable. And, you know, if, if you represent a rural area and the school bus service doesn't, you know, can't run, um, you are talking about maybe a third to a half of your secondary school students unable to go to education. You know, it was, it was a serious issue. And I remember the official sort of obviously hadn't understood that because they had lived in, in London all their life. And that's fine. You know, I wouldn't be able to understand the issues of inner London. But I remember them turning to me and saying, well, Mr. Lake, I don't understand why you're making these representations because at the end of the day, private car use and, and, and leave petrol is a luxury. You know, uh, I, I'm still amazed by my um, self-restraint at that because um, I managed to kind of keep very polite. But those are issues that sadly get overlooked. There is a good reason. It's not a, you know, some, sometimes people say, oh, they're trying to keep rural areas down. No, they're not. They just don't understand. It, it's perhaps more pathetic than that, actually. You know, then you only you want there to be a conspiracy, you know, against rural areas, keeping Kennedy gone down. No, it's not that. We just we need to shout to be able to um, almost for them to understand some of the basic needs and challenges we face. And if you you know, on top of that, then during the recent sort of cost of living crisis, poor connectivity. Then on this is more on the edges, but it nevertheless contributes to the overall picture. Poor connectivity in terms of public transport, you know, it's um, woeful, uh, and that's not to judge the you know the services that we do have and the drivers and the operators. They're doing a very good job in a in a terrible situation, but we also need to be quite honest that, you know, if you can live now just outside a town like Lampeter, for example, but if you're on the wrong side of the river, you can be five miles just outside, and there is no link to Lampeter to get to shops, to get to doctors' appointments, or to get to the main transport node to get a command into the hospital. That doesn't exist anymore. And somebody would say, "Well, you know, five miles or a couple of miles outside, what's the matter? You can walk or you can cycle. Not if you're disabled, though. Not if you're elderly. And I don't think you know we're not talking about rural, rural here. We're talking about small villages just outside." market towns have been completely disconnected from essential services and um, that's true of I know that public transport issues across the country you know across Wales it's, it's under strain but I think there are more alternatives if you if, you know the closer you live to a city there are more alternatives it's not that's not to say that it's easy but it is possible you can you know, literally be in Paso Caradigion where you could almost see the lights of the town you know on the horizon that's how close you are. But if you're disabled or if you're elderly or unmobile for whatever reason, may as well be on the moon for you. You know, you can't get to the shops, you can't get to college, you know, you can't get to the doctor's surgery. And that, that is a big issue. And um, increasingly, you know, people are having to travel or find ways of traveling even further, greater distances, to access dentistry and, and key essential services. And that's, again, something that is a, Accessing health services is a challenge across Wales. What is particularly unique for rural areas is that you have an extra barrier or hurdle to get to them. So yeah, it, it, it's uh, there are also lots of positives about living in rural areas. I'm sure. And uh, another part of your constituency I sort of wanted to deal with is, was Aberystwyth. And obviously one of the sort of things that people know Aberystwyth for probably more than anything else is the university. But and again, I, I always find it mad that we're still talking about Brexit seven years after the fact. But what kind of impact do you think Brexit is having on the university sector? And, and where do you think we kind of are in, in in this discussion on replacement funds in a Welsh context? Yeah, well, we're not in a good place. Um, that's the short answer. In terms of replacement of Brexit funding, I fear that as far as the UK government's concerned, um, the matter is closed, which if you listen to any university, whether that's in Wales or across the UK, um, that's far from reality. You know, we are facing um, a significant uh, drop-off in, in funding as the European schemes wind down. Or oh, sorry, we lose access to the to European schemes. And actually, as a, a Welsh Affairs Select Committee, we've been looking at this matter just last week. And, um, you know, the universities represented on that panel couldn't have been clearer. Now, this will have a massive impact on our ability, uh, our, sorry, our research capacity in Welsh universities. And it demands 
urgent attention. I and mean, this is something that, you know, at least at the research and innovation, this is reserved. This is a UK government priority. And and if I can rant for just one moment, you know, there's at the end of the day, the UK government policy is completely well, to say infantile is probably to to discredit young people, but it, it's illogical, you know, because on the one hand, you get from uh, Whitehall this uh, aspiration of levelling up. Now, the reason Welsh universities in particular are so worried about the uh, loss of access to EU funds is because we, we were entitled and had access to so much of it because we were so poor. Now, that's not something to be proud of, no, but it's also a reflection of reality. We were, in terms of economic um, prosperity, far, far behind from other parts of the UK and, okay, apart from Cornwall, but most of the UK uh, and including most parts of Western Europe. And that's why we were able to get way more um, in terms of support for our universities than, say, universities in southeastern England. Now, the UK government's policy appears to be that, well, now that we're at the uh, EU, the shared prosperity funds and what have you could be used for schemes in in um, in higher education. They're very mute on research. I don't think they understand research. But even if we just take their sort of statement on support for universities at face value, you still look at... I think Cardiff University gave us evidence last week, um, and it was something around the... Under the EU they were able to access hundreds of millions over you know, a seven-year period. And then under the new prosperity fund, um, they would be lucky if they get about you know, a couple of million. Uh, and so even if we just take the government, UK government's kind of line that, you know, share prosperity fund replace it. It's a smaller pot of funding to begin with. And then we also have to compete with other parts of the UK. And... I can say this perhaps because I, I went to one of the universities in the Golden Triangle. My old college, right, which has about 300 undergraduates and about 100 postgraduates, so say 400 all in, has a greater endowment than all of the universities in Wales put together. It has, in terms of income per student, nearly half a million. Then the next best in Wales is Cardiff at about 20 odd thousand. So the idea that you expect other universities outside the sort of Oxford, Cambridge and London to compete for the same pots of money is ludicrous and, and flies in the face of any assertion of a government keen on levelling up. You know, if they were keen on levelling up, they'd do one of two things. They'd either um, restore the principles of, of European funding and actually allocate funding based on need um, and relative need at that. Or they have a very, very big conversation about whether or not Oxbridge should still be able to access some of these funds. And I say that as, as a, you know, as an alumni, alumnus of, of one of those. You know, that's what that's what really needs to happen because they have decades, if not centuries, of advantage, and they've amassed wealth over those uh, over that time as well. And um, yeah, the government just simply doesn't have a, a clue. Well, as a graduate of the University of London, Ben, I joined those calls with you as well. <laughs> um, so you mentioned there um, you, you sit on the Welsh Affairs Select Committee, you sort of the lone Plaid Cymru voice on a committee, otherwise Labour and Conservative MPs. How do you think those larger parties are handling Brexit, both in a sort of practical way and also in a political way? Do you think there's a sort of been an abdication of responsibility because of what happened in the 2019 general election? There's definitely a fear of, of um, Brexit that emanates from the 2018 election. I personally, and maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm guilty here of, of uh, reading the opinions of Keradigion as that of the UK, but um, you know, Keradigion is the centre of the universe, so I'm going to run with it. I don't think that the Labour Party in particular needs to be quite as cautious when it comes to Brexit. I think they can be far more assertive in stating their, you know, their, their, I mean, I remember Sakir Starmer in the last parliament and one of the biggest proponents of, of a close relationship with the European Union. I think that in terms of the next election, it would not be a vote loser to say that, you know, we need a closer relationship with the EU. We should be pushing for alignment of the single market so as to join it 
um, and the customs union, sorry, but you know the two go together really, um, and and to to explain why you know the report just this week about um, how the friction caused by Brexit on on uh, trade has added about a third to the um, sorry contributes a third of the increase to food prices. I think we need to be very clear when you know people are struggling. Um, and yes, they might not have much of an appetite for a, a meaningless constitutional argument, but this is a meaningful constitutional argument. This is about, right, if we were still members of the Single Market Customs Union, let alone the EU, but just let's say Single Market Customs Union, uh, the last few uh, months, you know, the increase would have been a third less. Okay, that's not great. It's still an increase, but I mean, you get a third more in your pocket. And I think we need to be a bit more assertive. And, and I would I say that the Conservative Party is lost. I mean, it, it's it's um, it's it's pandering to the very extreme minorities and, uh, of its of its own party. Um, there, I can't see them to be much hope of a sensible discussion on Brexit from the Conservative Party for a generation. But for Labour, I think they really do need to be a bit more assertive because, okay, opinion polling. Opinion polling always has its, its drawbacks, but it, it, it's been quite consistent now that people are sceptical about Brexit. And whilst I'm not saying for a moment that people would definitely vote to rejoin the European Union tomorrow, if you were able to campaign on the message of, look, single market Christmas Union uh, membership will help jobs, will ease uh, the impact of inflation. And we need to be clear, not to pretend that it'll it'll eradicate inflation and we'll start to get deflation and, and things go back to normal. But to explain that it'll, you know, it will help, I think people across Wales would be quite happy to, to join uh, that sort of campaign and um, you know, root it very firmly in tangible, real-world examples because people, I think, across the country deserve that now. You know, they are struggling. It's difficult. You know, their children are unlikely to have a better standard of living than parents. You know, that hasn't happened much in the course of Welsh history. And we've had a pretty difficult history. Let's be clear to people. This is why we should do it, because it'll help you in this way. Um, so, I, yeah, answer your question very in a short manner, because as you can say, I ramble a lot. In a, but in a short manner, I think, yes, there is an application of duty, uh, uh, responsibility here. And... Um, it's only going to get worse. You know, mm. full amount of checks on the borders haven't been implemented yet. It's going to well, be seven games that happen. <laughs> oh, absolutely, Ben. But so we're talking about this thing as it develops, right? So I, I think Keir Starmer's line so far has been not about overturning or reversing Brexit, but making it work. And there's a few people, possibly me and you, involved as well, who who think that that that's fundamentally impossible you can't you can't square the circle of all the promises that were made and all the, the realities that are now presenting themselves but i think it's very unlikely that you go into the next general election with labor saying anything apart from we will try and make brexit work but do you think that it's the sort of thing that if labor were to arrive with a big majority they may think or oh, maybe we can find a closer relationship here or what's the real politic involved do you think of of, of making that making the political class realise that there is a route forward for sort of single market access for the UK. Yeah. Yeah. I think that if there was a... If there was a large majority for Labour at the next UK general election, it definitely would help Starmer in particular to pursue a close alignment with the EU. Because that's what I personally think he is anyway. Um, the challenge you'll have, though, is... Unless it's sort of worded in a, in a clear enough way in the manifesto, there will be so many competing challenges in that five-year term, five term. Even with a majority, it's going to be difficult. You know, there are so many things that need to be fixed after the last period um, in, in, Welsh politi in UK politics, rather, um, that is going to be competing for, for parliamentary legislative time, as well as a bandwidth for ministers. And I also think that we should be realistic that if, you know, Labour win a, a landslide and they'll have a, just a sole Labour-only um, government, you know, there are few members now who've actually governed before. I know that was a 
you know, something they said before 97 as well, isn't it? And, and things went well. But it did, you know, it does take time because it, it is one thing to be in the shadow of cabinet. It is another then to actually be running the departments and all of the day-to-day work and, and pressure, more than anything, just the time that, that it sucks out to people's diaries, let alone then the mind space to think about things. So it's going to take time. And I, and I think that the majority of a government is unlikely, if we're being fair and realistic, to be able to make big changes in the first two years of that term. And unless it is one of its clear commitments in the manifesto that they're going to pursue uh, closer alignment, Hillary Benn's done a lot of good work on this, actually. Um, and if, if, if some of his thinking and work is reflected in the Labour manifesto, then I think a majority is going to make it a lot easier to, to actually see a closer alignment within that five-year period. If it's a bit more nebulous in wording, I think it'll be difficult because then what you'll get is you'll get the Conservative Party or whatever rump sort of right-wing party they'll be, they'll campaign heavy on saying, look, you didn't campaign on this. You've, you know, you, you've campaigned on one thing and then when you're in government, you, you go back on your word. And that'll be, how effective it'll be, I don't know, but it'll be a concern. Talking more now about uh, the next general election more broadly. So if if the polling is accurate, and obviously, as we both know, caveats apply with polling, and it looks likely that Labour will be in some form of government, what do you think that will mean for Wales? I think for the first few years, primarily because of the issues I just mentioned, you know, about how it takes time for, for new governments to, especially new ministers, to, to just bed in and, and get in a bit of... Uh, experience. Um, I don't think there'll be much of a difference. You know, I, I don't see a Starmer government altering much of the spending plans in the first year or so. I mean, even Blair and Brown didn't do that, you know, and, and they had a massive majority, a massive landslide. So in the first few years, I don't think there'll be much in terms of, you know, additional funding. You know, I think, I think they'll we're more likely to have inflation plus a little bit, but nothing, you know, radical. When it comes to the dynamic between the first minister and, and the prime minister, that's where it's really interesting in my in my opinion. Um, you know, there it's been discussed in your podcast before. You know, that there is an interesting uh, difference sometimes between the sort of Welsh Labour MPs and Welsh Labour uh, members of the CNF, and. Um, It'll be interesting on questions like HS2 funding, you know, how that's treated, or not just HS2, but um, large infrastructure projects and the DFT budget. You know, how will how will that be squared away? Because in fairness, you know, Welsh Labour MPs have been very vocal um, in their belief that the statement of funding policy needs to be amended to allow Wales to have a banner consequential. You know, sorry, it's a bit... Uh, anaraki there but oh no 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 this is this is the home of the anoraks don't worry <laughs> but you know in, to, to give them credit welsh labor MPs have been very vocal um in, in saying you know that hs2 should be classified as an england uh only project to release the funding for infrastructure in wales now whilst accepting that a lot of the expenditure will have been sunk into hs2 by the time of uh, any new labor government there's still quite a lot of money to be spent on it. And, um, you know, if I were to be a, a politician for a moment, that's an opportunity um, as well as a as a risk for some parties. And that's where I think we're going to really see how committed UK Labour is to the union, actually. Because my, my impression, I, I always sort of scratch my head as to why UK Labour doesn't seem to learn more of the lessons of Welsh Labour. And not quite through gritted teeth, but with a little bit of envy, you know, Welsh Labour are very successful and um, has been for quite some time now the most successful part of the UK Labour sort of family. And it's it beggars belief that they don't have, you know, Mr Drakeford and top Welsh Labour officials around the table. Um, they might be, but they don't seem to have as prominent a place. And I remember when Gordon Brown did his um, report on the Constitution uh, again, this might have been my mistake and that I missed it, but it seemed that the leader of the Scottish uh, Labour Party had greater prominence than you know the Welsh First Minister. Now, 
more as just as a pure logic, you know, Scottish Labour is yet to win anything. Uh, sorry, for a while, for a while. Whereas less than a year, I think, before uh, before the uh, announcement of Gordon Brown's report, Welsh Labour had won yet another election. So it's just very bizarre. And I think um, we'll see under a UK Labour government how much they understand some of the regions and how much importance they give them. We could have a chat about that for about an hour, so we'll move quickly on. But you have essentially guessed where I was going to go next. And so you spend an awful lot of time with Welsh Labour MPs, whether that be in the back benches or serving on committees. And whilst they're very supportive of things like the funding for HS2, there's some discussion about how supportive they are of the broader constitutional steps that Mark Drakeford is in favour of, whether that be the devolution of justice and policing or whether that be more wide-scale constitutional chains, like making the UK a federation or a confederation. What's your impression of Welsh Labour MPs and how supportive they actually are of that part of the agenda? My impression in general is that they are very, uh, I think this is, is admirable, that they are primarily focused on outcomes. And they are very, very anxious to ensure that any discussion of the constitutional has a clear outcome, beneficial outcome. And now, where I would then join in the debate and say, well, there are actually a lot of good reasons why you should devolve powers over policing and justice, probation, you know, at least probation, you know, um, that's such a, in my mind anyway, and as evidenced by the Thomas Commission report, um, as well as a whole host of other publications, it's probably the bare minimum that you need for a functioning well, system that you hoped will rehabilitate offenders, they are not always as convinced, you know, and it, it does kind of make you chuckle sometimes, you know. Well, if a report by a former Chief Justice of the UK Supreme Court thinks it's a good idea, who else do you need to tell you before you think it's a good idea? And further to that, I find it really quite bizarre because there has been an argument to say that one of the reasons perhaps why people would not want to devolve further powers is that you lose then that ability to change entire systems when you get into office in Whitehall. But then in the Welsh context, at the moment, you know, Labour uh, in a very commanding uh, position. So that doesn't really seem to be, in my mind at least, a good reason why you wouldn't want to devolve it because you're effectively devolving it to yourself. And without being too rash in my kind of statements, I'd say that, you know, a Labour government in Cardiff is probably a safer bet than a Labour government in London in terms of prospects of how long it will last. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's a bizarre one. One of the interesting topics, and it feeds back into something you said earlier. So you, you're very hyper aware of the fact that in Ceredigion, you are essentially a local problem solver. But one of the big discussions that's happening in UK politics at the moment and has been probably for the last 20 years or so, whether it's at the forefront or not of our discussion, is a change to sort of more proportional voting systems. How do you think it's reconcilable, that that view of more proportional representation, but also having a local problem solver that people can go to with their issues? And do you think that essentially what we're about to have, if that discussion happens during the next UK government, whatever political hue it is, it's probably a, a discussion around STD rather than a pure proportional system. I think so. I, yes, I think it's, it, you're looking at STV. Um, I, I think that if there is a role for the Liberal Democrats in the next UK government, I would imagine that they will have learned the lessons of uh, 2010 and they will, in any agreement, insist on electoral reform without a referendum. Um, at least that's what experience history would suggest they do, or they present a proper option to people rather than AV. And I think you're right in terms of striking that balance between that local identifiable link animal proportional system. I think we're probably, in terms of real politics, I think we're looking at STV as, as the best compromise between those two sort of perceptions of how politics representative politics should work. It would be a really interesting dynamic, actually, in Wales. If Senate reform goes through, um, and, sorry, if it goes through in its current form, and you have 
I think it's 32 constituencies, isn't it? Of, of um, or they're or 16, sorry, they they yeah, you know, they paired with the 32, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there were 16 constituencies overlap then with the 32 Westminster uh, constituencies. And I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not, um, I don't think it's a problem at all to have different voting systems. You know, people say, oh, people get confused. Rubbish. We've always had different um, voting systems. Well, at least since in my lifetime, more or less. Um, and people get a, get around just fine. What is more of a, a known unknown is how will people respond on a day-to-day level? Because if you think of Caribbean, the next, after 2026, you will have one Westminster MP directed by, well, at least for that parliament, anyway, first past the post, and it's identifiable. If you live within those postcode areas, you will be just that person for Westminster issues. And then for Senev, you will have, for a much larger area, geographically speaking, a choice of six. Now, we know from experience of, of uh, devolution thus far that regional assembly members get a lot of work, right? So they still get work. People know about them, can contact them. But what I'm not entirely sure yet in my mind is whether constituents will start to just gravitate towards the individual MP as opposed to the six MSs. That, that's not a foregone conclusion. It's just, I think, a piece, a challenge that those of us who believe in devolution need to meet and to ensure that people of Wales realise, no, this is how you contact your MSs. These are. There then is the final little question. Of course, you're unlikely to get six MSs from the same party, right? That's one thing I'm willing to predict. You'll never get that. Um, how do we ensure that you don't get the MSs focusing their efforts, their offices, their machinery in the same areas? Because some of these new CNF constituencies will be quite large. And if you look at what Ker- I don't know who Kerrigio Proselli will be paired with, but Kerrigio Proselli in itself is a big area. And if it, you'd think it probably might be matched up with the other Pembrokeshire, the, the South and Mid Pembrokeshire, you know, in terms of population, self-interest would dictate parties to campaign mainly in Pembrokeshire and South Pembrokeshire at that. What, what does that then mean for the rest of the constituency? And you're not going to be able to coordinate it, really, because you'll have at least three parties, if not four, represented, and they all want to do their own thing. And, you know, you can't be the one that says, well, we'll take Pembroke Dock and all that area. You go up to, I don't know, uh, I'm going to be mindful of what I say, but areas where there are fewer people, because political parties ultimately want to win elections. So that's going to be an interesting dynamic as well. It'll be a challenge. And maybe the way you get around it is that, dare I say it, um, the CNF offers more resource in terms of multiple offices for those individuals. Um, so it's an interesting question because obviously the new Caradigio Prasadi seat, which I, I don't know if you know, but we uh, at Hereith have sort of sentimentally called Caradig along. <laughs> it's so massive is you know when you think of seats like that or you think of what may happen to some of the power seats they're going to be huge geographical areas that people have to represent so but you have led us into what i kind of wanted to end on which was the the new boundaries so whilst people the, the anoraks like us ben will, will sort of understand what's going on in terms of how boundaries are drawn and why there's this change to the 32 from the 40 but what is that process like as a sitting MP like would you be able to describe the process of boundary reform from an MP's perspective oh yeah no certainly um I should also just declare that I was on the bill committee um as well so I probably have a little bit more of a understanding of the technicalities than a typical MP would need in all honesty it's, it's quite a, an easy process for an MP because there's nothing you can do about it <laughs> <laughs> um, rightly so, the act, uh, or the, well, the bill that became the act, um, I actually think was right to remove the ability of MPs to have a say of the final outcome. Because if you remember, the last few attempts at boundary reform um, have fallen, primarily because MPs had a say at the end, and, and turkeys don't necessarily vote for Christmas. And so 
the last boundary review was scuppered partly because of MPs' involvement, but also about the election 2017. Um, the one before that was scuppered because of, of MPs voting for their self-interest. So they removed that. And because um, MPs no longer have a say in, 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 uh, in the proposals or the implementation of the proposals, it means that our role is very much sort of relegated to, the, to that of the parties you know, and, and communities. Um, who can make contributions to the uh, Boundary Commission in terms of what they think is important for particular areas. During the debate on the bill itself, something that I and, and other MPs um, tried to sort of convey was the importance of geographical areas and, and how that impacts both the ability of a constituent to access um, his or her MP and also the MP in question to, to give service you know, and uh, whilst appreciating you can never have uniformity of, of, of outcome because every MP will do things differently, um, there at least should be an ability there for an MP, whether you represent uh, an urban seat or a rural seat, to engage with your constituents uh, to the same extent. And if you think about some of the, the new Welsh seats, I mean, the, the I think they might have changed the name now, but the, the old uh, Glyndwr seat, a behemoth. And they will often say, well, the Highland seats are bigger. Yeah, that's true in geography. But what you have, I think, with the Welsh seats is you have this weird combination of large geographical areas along with quite high levels of, of uh, electorate. Because, you know, the, the maximum is 76,000 under the new rules. Um, I think the Kerrig and Proselli, as well as the two sort of power seats, um, all three are close to the higher end of that population, sorry, electorate threshold, and also have very large geographical areas. And, um, you know, if you sit, as I have to do sometimes, and think about, well, if we were to win the next election, um, how do you run the system that you run now, where you do have surgeries a bit of everywhere? You try and go around all the towns and villages on a regular basis, as well as actually do work, <laughs> um, how do you do it? And my conclusion is you can't really do it with one office. You will have to split the office into two geographical areas. Um, and even then, it's going to be a push. So, yeah, it, it, the, the process itself, though, is MPs are very removed from it. On this tail end now, though, are you able to, I suppose you... It's difficult when you you aren't the MP for Keridigion Priscelli or the MP for Keridigion. It's very difficult to have that sort of conversation before the fact, saying, you know, if if I do become the MP for this constituency, yeah. we need me more resource. Do you, do you envisage that's the sort of conversation that will happen after? And also, as we both know, you know, the idea of giving MPs more resources sometimes isn't the most popular thing. Can you imagine <laughs> there being any sort of political fallout because of these sort of new changes in the things that necessitate from them. Definitely. There'll be a massive fallout. You know, one of the things you get every year is the um, outcry over MPs' expenses. And I, for one, right, I'm not opposed um, to people being angry and scrutinise MPs and, you know, how much do they use on their office, how much do they use on travel. I'm not against that at all. One thing that I do think is unhelpful is the way that um, our staffing costs are... Uh, sort of released as if it's somehow a personal expense. And, you know, increasingly so, I'm very happy to justify, you know, spending almost my entire staffing budget on staff because I can tell you one thing, they work pretty damn hard for it. Um, and if they weren't there, and if I was trying to be a bit more kind of, uh, well, stingy, actually, um, in my use of staffing budget, people at Keradigion wouldn't have half as good a service as they do now. Um and, and I think that's not helpful. And so in looking ahead, I think there'll be a, a very big challenge trying to get public support for an uplift to office budgets, for example. Because I think what you're probably talking about is a slight uplift in staffing budget, but a more significant one to the office budget for all intents and purposes so that you are able to run two offices. How IPSA, which is the, um, I know you know, but IPSA, you know, the, the institution that's responsible for MPs, finances and business costs, how will they determine which constituencies are eligible for two offices, for example? I don't know, but um, either that or you're going to have rural MPs in the press every year 
because they've got higher traveling expenses. Um, and what will happen is that some of us will just not bother claiming um, and scale back on what we claim and just take it out of our own pocket, which is fine. But that's only because we are in a certain position. We don't have as many commitments family-wise you know, that we are able to do that. That shouldn't be the way that we run our democracy. You know, you shouldn't be basically making it more expensive for a, an MP to, sorry, for an individual to represent a rural constituency than perhaps a more geographically concise one, um, or compact one, sorry. Uh, but it's going to be a massive issue. And I think people, the biggest challenge will be for people to understand that they will be unable to have the similar type of relationship with their MP as they have done for generations. Um, it's no longer going to be quite like the fact that you're a country parish vicar you know, in all the coffee mornings, all the village shows. Um, it's already getting difficult because of the level of casework. If you also add on the fact then that if I'm you know, on the same day having to be in Fishgar and Aberystwyth, that's two and a half hours driving, just one way. There's, there's you know, there's no way of <laughs> getting around it. Ben, Diochavarian, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Diochavarian, pleasure. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.